right. Uh, so I don't know if you noticed it, but like Romans 8 is pretty much um, the greatest hits list for the Bible. Did you notice, like you might, you may not know scripture at all. You may like just be really, it may be foreign to you, but probably the top eight things that you've heard quoted are in this verse right here. Um, and I'm going to talk about none of them. <laughs> I'm just playing. So there are two kinds of people in this world, I would have to say. Two kinds of people. The religious and people who are unaware of their religion. I was reminded of this this past week while I was at Fiona's. I arrived at Fiona's on Tuesday night getting ready for beer and hymns. I arrived at like 5 p.m. and I was waiting on someone to meet me for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just playing. I'm just playing. And so while I'm waiting, the shift manager at, um, at Fiona's comes and just sits down with me at my table. And so I have my harp and my, um, my thing of calamari, and she has her cup of coffee. And she's about, she's a 20-something-year-old, um, and she knows that I'm a pastor because people have told her that I'm a pastor, and she knows I'm here for weird reasons on Tuesday nights. Um, <laughs> But she kind of looked at me like a 20-something would look at a, uh, at a rotary phone. Like, like I'm, I'm familiar with this thing, <laughs> familiar with it, but um, I don't exactly know what to do with it, <laughs> right? I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know what you are. I don't really understand you. Um, especially because I seem to look young, and so that also just throws something else in, too. She immediately kind of went into this monologue recounting all that she had read about all kinds of world religions. Apparently that's what you do when you sit down with a pastor. How she at her young age had explored and scoured all kinds of volumes and tomes of religious knowledge in the world. And she had read church history and she had found it to be a bit distasteful all the ways the church had been complicit in all kinds of ills throughout the last 2,000 years. And so she informed me, she informed me, dun, 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 that she's not religious. She said, I just feel I should figure out how to do this being good thing. That was her next statement. As I sat there with my harp and my calamari listening to her preach to me about the ills of religion, all the things wrong with religion, as she kind of waxed and waned about what good and evil is to her, and as she talked about Martin Luther King Jr. and Mother Teresa, of course, and Gandhi, and how they have all been like inspirational figures in her life, I couldn't help but notice how highly religious she was. Especially if you want to speak linguistically. That is the root of the word religion. The root of the word religion is the same root for the word ligament. Your religion, like your ligaments, is what holds together your worldview so that you can be set free into the world to move and have a way of being. That is your religion. To not have a religion, then, is to have everything completely fall apart and to become immobilized. I listened to my friend, the shift manager at Fiona's, telling me about how she was holding together, knitting together the world around her that, so that she could move through life. And it was impressive how highly religious she was. It was also impressive how completely unaware she was of her religiosity. 
no one gets to opt out of religion. No one. The question is not whether or not you will be religious. The question is, what religion will you live? Will you have? My Fiona's friend was right about one thing, though. A wrong religion will kill you. And she had discerned that this Christianity or this religion in general would kill her. Up until this point in Romans, Paul has been making that clear. And he's been attempting to help us, all the folks who say we follow Christ, see that all of us have fallen short. All of us have fallen short of what God has demanded of us. That none of us uh, own the full weight of righteousness. This is God's. God owns that. And God has chosen to give that to us. We don't possess it. It's not ours. Paul has been helping us see what kind of religion is bound up and leading towards death. And he is finally at that point in the text where he wants to give the body of the early church its ligaments. Paul today is teaching what it means for the church to be held together, knit together, and also to be set free. Paul is turning a corner where he's talking now about these two groups, Jews and Gentiles, those who have and know the law and those who do not know the law whatsoever or didn't have it for most of their lives. And he's using every bit of his theological fortitude to pull these two halves of the church back together in order that they may be set free from both their lawfulness and their lawlessness. They've both got something to be a family that is worthy of the grace of Jesus Christ held together by the common ligaments that help them move through the world. Paul's making a shift today. So he's making a shift from the guilty tone. I don't remember if you remember the guilty tone from the last few weeks. Romans 3, we read, all have sinned and fallen short. Romans 7, last week, Paul says, we're all sinful. I among them all. I am the most sinful. I'm a wretched, wretched, wretched human being. I do what I know I'm not supposed to do, and I don't do what I know I'm supposed to do. But today, he switches to this new sort of inclusion. So I invite you to follow along with me in chapter 8 today. So this is what he says at the beginning of chapter 8. So now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's your, your top ten list for Paul. That's one of them. Uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life. And I'm going to stop it there. He's drawing a distinction between two different types of laws. The law, the Torah, is the way in which the Jewish people have lived their lives all this time. And this law has become not bad in itself, but has become this huge barrier for these people because it's been used by Jesus-believing people, by Jews, to keep others from being a part of this new church. Instead, he wants them to switch from that understanding of the law to understanding things through the grace of Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life is in Christ Jesus. When you hear the law of the spirit of life, think grace, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Paul's getting really, um, this is why people say Paul's anti-Semitic. He means it at this point in time, which is really sad, and we don't believe that at all. But right now, he's really mad at the law. So he's saying the law of sin, of sin and death is the Jewish Torah. 
That's what he's saying here, which is the law that, ha- that, that we've been discussing. And he says, these are set opposite of one another. The Torah has become to bind us together and has made us not be able to move freely in the world, while the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ sets us free. Don't get me wrong. Everyone is worthy, is worthy of being condemned. Wretched, wretched are we, Paul says. But because of Jesus, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. This is on Paul's greatest hits list. Now we're going to move to Paul's not-so-greatest hits list. He goes on to say truthfully, it's not the most, and this is not the most quoted or memorized scripture in Romans 8. In fact, you all might not know it. You, you may not. But in verse 14, he redefines this completely. But before he redefines this completely, before I show you that, um, I want to remind you a little bit of where we've been. And not to rehash it too much, but to tell you, we've been talking a lot over the last few weeks about the difference between a bounded set mentality and a centered set mentality. Both of these are mathematical terms used in the 1940s to start talking about theology. And a bounded set mentality says that if you want to belong, if you're in and out, if you're in or out, we know this because you sort of exist within these boundaries of what's right or appropriate, whether that's a belief or a behavior. Either one, doesn't matter. This is the bounded set mentality. And if you don't, if you don't exist in the right belief or right behavior, then you are on the outside. And both Jews and Gentiles believed this. They both operated in this in and out world. And what Paul has been trying to do is have them erase the boundary and define things not by who's in and who's out, but more um, based on Jesus as the center and asking who is moving closer to Jesus or who is moving further away from Jesus. So this is the image we want to keep in mind, not an in and out image. But in, and you could even maybe even picture a bar graph too. That's fine. I like this one better because it's not so um, limited to a bar. But it's about who's moving closer to Jesus or who's moving further away. And with that in mind, Paul puts the final point on this in Romans 14. So let's look at it. For all who are led by the oh sorry, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. It's a little bit coded. It's a little bit coded. We might not necessarily hear it, but children of God is this very distinct term. The idea was that you were either in the boundary, a part of God's family, right? Or you weren't in the boundary, a part of God's family. The children ideally ideally receive the inheritance from their parents, right? If you were in the family, you were a child of God, and then you would receive the kingdom, the inheritance from God. But if you were not in the family, if you were not a child of God, then you were an heir to nothing, nothing at all. But now, Paul says, things are changing a bit. In the love of Christ Jesus, things change. Now it's no longer who's in and who's out. But for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption to belong. We call Abba, Daddy, Father. It is the very spirit bearing witness in our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs, right? 
heirs to the fortune of God, not money. We're not prosperity here. That is the wealth of God's love, the wealth of God's love and grace and forgiveness for humanity. That's a really interesting comparison. Paul also does something else, paying attention to the same verse. Paul sets up fear versus what? Somebody call it out. What's the opposite of fear? Adoption. Wonderful. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you've received a spirit of adoption, a spirit of overwhelming love and belonging from God. Here's what I know to be true. Fear and love inhabit the exact same space within us. Fear and love inhabit the exact same space within us. There is a container, and it holds something, whatever the thing is. And love and fear reside in that same container. And if that container is more full of fear, then it's less, less full of love. And if that container is more full of love, then it's less full of fear. What Paul is saying is, if we're going to get along with one another... We've got to recognize that we are all equally loved by God. We have all received, all received a spirit of adoption with which we can call Abba, Father. We become heirs to his grace, heirs to God's goodness, heirs to God's love. All of us. No longer do we have to be enslaved by the fear of scarcity. There's only but so much of God's love. And so that's reserved for the church inside the bounds. And God's love, once you move over that boundary, is immense there. We're not really sure how God's love operates out there, though. And so now it's us versus them. And if we, if I can get them out, if I can get them out, then there's more of God's love for me. And we don't say this out loud, but this is where that question resides when when people talk about universal salvation and they get really scared about it. I'm not a universalist by any means, but people get really scared of any single tinge of it. Get in, really scared. I don't know why. We can't handle it. We can't handle it. And I would venture to guess the reason why we can't handle it down deep inside of us is because if everybody's saved, what does that mean for me and my life and how I live my life and how I've thought I had access to God's love more so than other people, right? I'm not a universalist, but I get, I get why, I get why Rob Bell left the church. I mean, if you know Rob Bell, he was, he was condemned for being a universalist and left the church because of it. Um, All of us, no longer do we have to be enslaved by that fear of scarcity, which many times is the case in inheritance. Think of your average funeral, What are people fighting over at a funeral normally? What are families fighting over? Who was the most loved child, right, kind of down deep? Which child would mom have wanted, right? Which child would mom have wanted to do the eulogy, really truly, if you asked her? Uh, who Who has secretly been a disappointment to mom? Who's going to receive the most from, my, from the parents? Who's going to have to pay for the parents' debt? These are the kind of questions we ask around funeral inheritance, and these are the same kind of questions we ask about the kingdom. Paul says that that's the battle in which we're locked, and fear breeds in that space. Fear resides within that container. 
And it might not be the most glaring thing, but where fear resides, so do the misuse of certain words. Before I tell you what misused words in the, in the church, I'll give an example of fear and the misuse of words on the political, uh, on the political stage. In 2015, when a kid went into a manual African Methodist Episcopal church armed to kill, he used one very particular word. That four-letter word started with an R. It's not really a kid-appropriate word. I could spell it, or I'll say, he said, you're raping our people. That's what he said. And then fear invoked immediately. Fast forward a few years, actually about one year, and there's a man named Donald Trump. Perhaps you know him. And he used the exact same word to invoke fear. The Mexicans are coming across the border. You know what they're doing? They're raping our women. He used the same word. And taking a word that has nothing to do with these people, not at all has to do with these people, and using it to invoke fear. The more fear we have, the less love we have. The less love we have, the less we're united together. The less we're united together, the more right we think we are, the more wrong they think they are, and an entire political platform is formed around this. And we do this all the time with everything, right? We do this all the time with everything, and we do this in the church as well. While our words are not as shocking, as jarring, as completely disabling and viscerally offensive as the R word that's used, over time through our reading of scripture, the church has managed to use doctrinal words like salvation, righteousness, faithfulness. These words meant for good. Words not having anything to do with co-opting them to change and to manipulate and to keep people out have become our captors. They've enslaved us, have wandered so far from the grace of Jesus Christ, our liberator. For all those who are led by the Spirit are children of God. And you hear the echo of Jesus say, I have sheep, not of this fold. And they too hear my voice, says Jesus. Paul is speaking to these two groups of people whose fear about one another, what that meant for their individual salvation and righteousness and inheritance as children of God. You know, we we call them Christ followers too. Then we might have to admit that we're not as right. That's hard. If we look out into the world and see people who self-identify as non-religious, self-identify as atheists, self-identify as Muslim, and we say something like, they're not Christian, they don't know God, they can't possibly know the depth of God's love, we know we call them Christ followers too, then we might have to admit that we're wrong. We might have to admit that we're bound by scarcity and we're bound by the what does it mean if we say God loves them too? The church is at its most beautiful 
when it is a container full of love where fear cannot exist. That's the most beautiful expression of church. A container full of love where fear cannot exist. The religion at its most beautiful, too, which is, you know, it's funny because religion is a bad word in the church, too, for some reason. We've lost, we lost sight of the goodness of the word religion. Religion at its most beautiful has a way to hold us together. Hold us together under a set, certain set of beliefs, knowing that we're all moving in the direction of Jesus. But if that's all it does, it's binding us up towards death. Because religion also has to set us in a trajectory to set us free from all of that as well. When we spot fear, I would say, it's the job of the church to root it out. That's, that is our job. So maybe I said a few weeks ago, what, what does Jesus have to do with this? Why come to church? Why, why serve God? Why be faithful? Why try to serve God with your heart, mind, and spirit? Because you're a part of a mission, a purpose that's so much bigger than this. But to add to that, what is a part of that mission and purpose? Rooting out fear, calling it fear, naming it, and rooting it out. That's, that's what we profess when we get up here in front of the church, when we are baptized or when we, are, um, we become members, and we say, do you reject the spiritual forces of wickedness? I mean, it's not demons that we're talking about. We're talking about fear that moves us towards death. And that's a really high calling. It's a really high calling. As I sat in that booth at Fiona's with myself, with that self-professed spiritual but not religious woman, I was reminded of the fear that has injected the bloodstream of millennial consciousness. Not the same kind of fear we have. Their fear is towards the institution, towards the church. It's a fear of being judged, a fear of religion, whatever that means, a fear of the pastor, a fear of anything at all that remotely looks like, well, not even this, but like this. Uh, we are different, but still the same. I was reminded of Romans while I was sitting there and how the church in Romans put on a master's level course and religion gone all kinds of wrong. They use religion as a tool for fear. My Fiona's friend could have looked at the same text from today and said, see, look right there. It's right in the Bible. Religion is a problem. The question is not whether or not any of us can, can opt out of this religious stuff. The question is, is the religion you've been embodying the one that leads to life? Like the ligaments in your body, is your religion or reading of scripture or your worldview or your faith held together, knit together into who God is in the resurrected Christ, which means nothing, nothing can separate a single darn person from the love of Christ. Nothing. Is the goal of your faith not to work your way into God's favor or... Is it to be open to God's favor that is the spirit of adoption that is open for all people? You too, you too, you too, but not just you. Is the embodiment of your religion the most liberating and unbinding thing that you've ever experienced in your life? Do you feel bound up, tied up by your religion? Or is it setting you free? As soon as religion becomes a binding agent as opposed to a liberating agent, 
we have cheapened the grace of Christ. In a world where people are willing to askew religion, in a world where religion is being used as a tool for fear, God is knitting us together to realize that we cannot opt out of communion with one another. We cannot. There are two kinds of people in the world. People who are religious and people who are unaware of their religion. And the good news is that God is in the business of converting both of them. Amen.